Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. These are interesting times that we find ourselves living in. Um, social media has, has really... Um, it's changed the world so much. And one of the things for pastors that it's done is this, there's this pressure now for pastors to have to go online and tell everybody what their opinion is about whatever's going on. And I try to avoid doing that because, honestly, I just my opinion is a puddle in an ocean of opinion, is a, is a drop in an ocean of opinions. For the record, I, I think you should shoot down spy balloons. I don't think you should shoot down high school science projects. Uh... I am opposed to train derailings. I'm opposed to that, uh, just for the record. Um, so, but, so I, don't, I just don't feel like it's my job to go on and give my opinion about every single thing that goes on in the world. I, I don't think my opinion's that valuable. Um, however, when things go on in the church, I do think it's important to, uh, to be able to evaluate those things and to, um, to bring some sense of... of uh, judgment on things that are pertinent to the church. And so if you've been watching the news as of late, you've probably seen what's been going on up in Kentucky at Asbury University. And um, let's see. So, uh, so you know what's been going on at Asbury University. And uh, some of you that were around and cognizant back in the 60s and 70s may remember the uh, may remember what happened back at Asbury back in the back in the day, and talk about the revivals and things that happened there. And one of the things that's different today than back in the 60s and 70s is we didn't have social media to be able to be able to share these things. Um, and so um, now it's out there, and 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 everybody has an opinion about what's going on. Pastors have opinions, and lay people have got opinions. You've got opinions. I've got opinions, and and everybody's got an opinion. And some people think, and you may be in this camp, you think that this is the next great awakening that's about to unfold, and it's starting there in the college chapel at Asbury. Um, some people are making the case that this is just a social media-fueled emotional sing-along, and maybe you're in that camp as well. I want to offer a shocking alternative to you today. What if we just withheld judgment? I understand that's a, that's a, a terrifying thought. What if we just withheld judgment and see what happens instead of trying to make a determination after what's been a little over a week of activity there in the school? And it's, it's interesting. I won't lie. It's incredibly interesting. I went, went on Google Maps because I wasn't completely sure where the school was. And there's like traffic jams around the school from people who are trying to make pilgrimages to this, to this college campus. And so, so it's certainly interesting. But what if we actually withheld judgment and waited to see, is this truly a God-sent event? Is it really just social media-fueled spiritualism? What if it's a little bit of both? And we're not in a position to judge what's actually happening. Because the fact of the matter is, is I've never been to Asbury University. I've never stepped foot in their chapel. I don't plan on driving to Asbury, Kentucky, just to see what's happening, because I don't like crowds anyway, and so going to see crowds doesn't entertain me at all. And so here's an idea. We shouldn't pray for revival and then question it when it arrives. At the same time, we shouldn't try to create revival artificially with emotional appeals. Both of those facts are, are true. I am hopeful that God is about to move and do something in our generation. 
Man, I hope that God moves in this generation. I hope that God stirs and God saves and God rescues and God sends revival. I am prayerful that that happens. At the same time, I'm somewhat suspect of a revival that is fueled by TikTok. At the same time, there's no denying that God certainly likes to use weak vessels. And so if God can do anything with TikTok, he can certainly send revival. So I'm not in a position to judge. But what I do want to see, and I believe this is when we truly see revival, when the local church is impacted. That's when we know revival is taking hold. When, when repentance is happening and people are turning from their sin and trusting in Jesus. That's when revival is is happening. And then we can make a determination because I do believe this. I, I don't believe that God sends revival as a distraction from his primary purpose. God's primary purpose for, for the church is not to have all-night sing-alongs. It's not to have all-night testimony testimonial services. God's purpose for the church is to make disciples across the street and to the ends of the earth. That is God's purpose for the church. And in doing that, we worship and we pray and we praise and we give testimony and we bear witness and we preach sermons and we do all those things. But God's purpose for the church is to see the lost become followers of Jesus Christ and become become saved. Revival doesn't distract us from that. Revival enhances that. God sends true revival. People are saved. Culture changes and lives are transformed. In the meantime, while we wait and see what's really happening... We continue to pray that God will absolutely stir our college campuses to a renewed sense of holiness. I pray that God moves at UT Chattanooga in the campus ministries that are there. I pray that God shakes Covenant College on top of the mountain. I pray that God moves and stirs and and wrecks people in these college campuses, but it doesn't stay on college campuses. It starts it has to happen in the church too. And so while we pray for our college students, absolutely, we pray that what God does in their college ministries and in their chapel services that God will do in the local church as well. I believe that's where we truly see revival begin to happen. And so in order for me to feel great about what's taking place, then I think local churches need to catch a spiritual fire before I'm ready to cast a proper judgment on what's taking place. In the meantime, I really believe the biblical admonition here is, is important. Not every spirit is of God. And so whenever we see a move of spiritual significance, what are we supposed to do? Test that spirit to see if it is from the Lord. And so I think there's wisdom for us here as we see spiritual activity that we actually do test it and see that it's from God. And so I'd invite us to take a moment now to pray that God would continue to move, not just at Asbury University, but let's see God move at the Baptist Student Center at UTC and at our Christian colleges here. Let's see God move there as well. So would you join me in prayer as we pray for God to continue his work? Father, we meet today in your house, eager to see you move. God, it's foolish for us to pray for revival and then be surprised if you send it. And so God, we join together with Christians all over the country today who are praying that this is real. We've heard rumors of of other colleges and universities starting these kinds of spiritual activities, these times of worship and prayer and testimony. But Lord, we understand that it is your church that is the mechanism by which you want to see the Great Commission accomplished. It is your church. Your church is what you have instituted. And so we send our college students to the university. They're not part of the church on the college campus. 
They're gathered as Christians, but God, we believe and, and long for you to move within your body, within your local churches. We long for these revival fires to burn hot within your church. At the same time, God, we pray for our college students who are meeting at UTC and at Covenant College and at Shorter University in Berry College. We pray for these universities that are around us and near us, God, that you will burn fire, uh, the, the, the fire of the Holy Spirit hot there, but that it will not stay there. It will flow into your churches, and God, you will continue to use your church to build your kingdom in this neighborhood and beyond. So God, give us wisdom, give us discernment, give us willingness to, to, to be used by you in seasons such as this. Father, we long to see you move. Move now in our midst today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So this week, Foster, I don't know if you've had this problem or not, but there's been a battle going on. Not a spiritual battle, it's been very much a battle against flesh and blood. We've had a bird battle that's been taking place in the parking lot. And maybe you've had a bird battle in your, own, in your own driveway as well. It's that time of year where the birds lose their minds. And the mirrors on the car become public enemy number one for the birds. And they like to stand on the edge of the car mirrors and they like to fight. I mean, they, they, like, to, they like to fight, they like to fight their reflection. And of course, as they fight, man, they leave a mess. I'm glad that like boxing and MMA, they don't fight like this because uh, it would really affect the ratings, but the birds fight, and man, they make a mess. My truck was, was, had an unholy baptism. <laughs> I've caught the bird in the act a couple of times, and I was just watching, I was like, man, this is such a strange pattern of behavior for this animal. I mean, such, a, such an odd thing. Now, now, to be fair, I've not yet gone out of my way to stop it. I've tried to fold the mirrors in thinking, oh, he won't squish, squish in there between the mirror and the door, and man, he does. And like when he did that, it got worse. And so I've thought, well, a BB gun's probably not very accurate, so I don't want to, I don't want to shoot Foster's car in the process. Um, and so, uh, so I guess the next, the next weapon in the battle is going to be the classy grocery bag cover over the, uh, over the, the mirrors. And I was reading about why birds do this, and it has to do completely with the time of year. They're, they're amped up on hormones, and they're trying to defend their territory. And that's what these birds are doing. And the tiny little brain in their little bitty skull is not processing everything quite right, just like a teenage boy is not processing everything right when you wash his brain with hormones. The bird isn't thinking clearly. And so as I watched this, I had a couple of thoughts. I wonder if the birds who aren't attacking the mirror judge the one who is. <laughs> There's old Joe out there again, fighting his reflection. Like, I just wonder if they're up there squawking, like, buddy, find something. I mean, you got to wonder. I mean, we would be. But then I was thinking that this poor bird, because I, I've caught him on your car and my car parked out there. Maybe at Sunday morning, you'll, we'll go out there and every car window will be, will be covered. And I'm thinking, man, this has got to be so frustrating for this poor little bird, because every attempt to fight his opponent is met with a perfect block. A peck to the right side is blocked to perfection. Every attempt to flog his enemy is a perfectly matched flog. A kick is warded off by a kick, and all day long, 
from the time that he wakes up, wherever he sleeps, to the time he, he passes out from exhaustion, he is fighting this battle with a perfect opponent who imitates him perfectly. As we continue our progress through 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 this morning, we're going to walk away with some pretty important concepts. Last week, we talked about how important it is for us to be busy about our faith while we're waiting for Jesus' return. It was all framed by Paul in this form of a prayer of gratitude. Paul is thankful for the church, but he's thankful for their reputation, that they're a loving church, they're a faithful church, they're a church that's marked by hope. To, we're, we're trying to break this chapter up into little smaller bite-sized chunks, but understand as you look at it that everything from chapter, chapter 1, verse 2, all the way down to verse 10 is one big, long, complex thought. So by breaking it up into its little chunks, we're trying to understand it better, but this is all one big idea, one big prayer of thanksgiving and gratitude from the Apostle Paul, one big introduction. And so I will say this, if you've missed anything in the last three weeks, we've made it super easy for you to go back and listen to content from previous weeks. How do you do that? Does anybody know? Download the Chat Valley app, and you can be sure to go back and listen to content from previous weeks. But we want to jump in today, and I'm going to actually start in verse 2 again, just to revisit where we've been. So if you're able, would you please stand with me as we, uh, as we read God's Word here. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of hope and labor of love and steadfastness of, your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Father, I thank you for your word through the Apostle Paul for this special church that we see in Thessalonica. Father, I pray that we might learn to be imitators of those who are more mature than us, those who are walking closer to you than we are. Father, that we might learn to imitate those who live their life out in a way that is honorable and pleasing to you. Father, again, we are grateful for your word. Help us to, die, to, to, to receive it well today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you, be seated. It doesn't take long for us as we dive in today for Paul to drop a term on us that is rather quite polarizing. Uh, and this word that Paul gives us, this concept that Paul gives us is the concept of election. Uh, and election is a trigger word. It's a word that, that, that people, people raise their antennas over when we use the word election. And it's, an, it's a trigger word in secular sources as much as it is in spiritual ones. If you want to get people riled up, talk about an election. And, and everybody's fired up about an election. I mean, I, I, mean people are more, I think people are more excited about elections than they are their church. Because, I mean, how many people put their... Put, put signs up at the corners for an election. Vote for so-and-so, vote for so-and-so. I see way fewer church signs than I see election signs, if that communicates anything to us, uh, because I can promise you that that election's not gonna change eternity, but the church is. 
Uh, so people get really fired up about elections, and, and there's all kinds of trials and in grand jury investigations, election rigging, and all kinds of stuff. Man, the news media goes nuts over election. But guess what? Spiritual folks get worked up about that word election too. And we'll leave the secular talk about elections out of it today, but I want to give this spiritual idea some attention today and understand that we've been fighting about election for the better part of 1,500 years. We're not solving the problem today. And depending, and whichever camp you're in, I assure you, you're gonna stay in the same camp before, by the time we're finished today. So we're gonna scratch the surface, but today I want us to consider this idea of being elected to a stellar reputation. If you look at verse four, the apostle Paul says this. He says, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. He has chosen you. First and foremost, make sure you recognize that he calls them brothers. There's a familial relationship within the body of Christ. Brothers and sisters, to be inclusive here. He's talking to his family. The church is his family. As you look around today, you recognize that the church is your spiritual family. The brothers and sisters seated around you are your spiritual family. But he talks about the fact that God has chosen them. New translations like the ESV or the CSB or even the NIV talk about God's choice of the Thessalonians. The King James Version, if you're reading the old King James Version, it talks about their election. It gets to the word election. It's the same word that's translated there just based on how the, how the, the versions deal with it. Regardless of how the word is translated, it is one of the more controversial words in the New Testament. I've never met anyone that denies election. There may be election deniers, but I've never met anyone who denies election, the biblical concept. The controversy comes in when we start trying to understand how election works. Some would argue that God elects based on his knowledge of future events. In other words, God is sovereign. He knows the beginning and the end. He knows the choices that you're going to make, and so he knows if you're going to become a Christian or not. God, you're not going to surprise God. Nobody's going to trick God and say, hey, you didn't think I'd ever come to faith, did you? That's not going to happen. God knows whether you're going to become a Christian or not, and if God knows you're going to become a Christian, then you are in the elect if God knows the decisions that you're going to make. More of our Methodist friends lean in that direction. Our Nazarene friends tend to lean in that direction. The, the more Wesleyan background lean in that direction. The other camp says that God elects on the basis of his own free choice. This is more the Presbyterian side of things, that, that God elects, not your decision is irrelevant, that, that it's without regard to our future choices. We, uh, we follow Jesus because he first chose us. And that's more the, the Presbyterian side. And the problem with Baptists is that we're on both sides. You got some Baptists who think this way, and you got some Baptists who think this way. And what I have learned is that the Baptists who think like that don't like each other nearly as much as they ought to. And they argue and fuss and fight with one another based on, on who's right, which, which I believe is the Baptist way. We just argue and fuss about things that we disagree about. As your pastor, are you ready? The million-dollar question, Pastor Brian, which side do you fall on? I land in the murky middle. I land in the murky middle because I see in God's word the role of human agency. There are places where people choose. 
And so I recognize that there is a role that I have to play as a believer in following Jesus Christ, in receiving the gospel. At the same time, I, I read my Bible and I see that there is a God who is sovereign and all-powerful and all-knowing, and, and, and he knows things that I can't possibly know. He knows the outcome of, of every possible scenario because he is all-encompassing in what he knows. And so I'm not foolish enough to think that I can trick him or fool him or that I'm going to escape his, his authority. And so because both examples live in, clearly inside God's word, we don't have a contradiction. We have what's called a paradox. And, and the tension in the middle is probably the safest place to be, quite honestly, because then you don't have to fight with anybody else. You just get along with other people because we've got bigger fish to fry than the semantics of how it works itself out. There's a lost and dying world that needs to hear the gospel. There's people who are saved who need Jesus, and we're busy arguing about the semantics of how God elects. How about we just worry about preaching the gospel to people who need to hear it, that they can follow the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved? That tends to be where I fall, a, a much more let's deal with the lost people in front of us rather than how God elects them. Let's just deal with the fact that they're lost and they need Jesus. So as your pastor, I'm in the murky middle. I know that's not what you were hoping for. But when we break into this opening prayer, we see that, that Paul talks about the fact that the Thessalonians are elect. They are chosen. But because we're breaking this up into smaller bites, it's somewhat difficult to understand exactly what he's talking about here. So we need to extend this back to what we talked about yesterday. And this is what we need to understand, or last week, this is what we need to understand. Regardless of which camp you fall in, or if you're like me and you just kind of like being in the murky middle, last week we talked about the faith, love, and hope of the Thessalonians. And they had faith, and they had love, and they had hope because they were elect, not the other way around. Why does that matter? Because when we are in Christ, our salvation produces those works of faith and love and hope. We are not saved because we are able to do those things. Because we are saved, God allows us to do those things. God chose the Thessalonians not because they were faithful, loving, and, ho and hopeful. The Thessalonians were faithful, loving, and hopeful because God chose them. Their works were indicative of their salvation, not causative. It's very important that we understand that. It doesn't matter which camp you fall in. Works that we talk about, these, these works of righteousness, these works of these spiritual works that we see in the church, that we see in Christians, are not what saves us. They are a product of our salvation. And that is very much important. If we ever get to the place where we think that by our works, we have somehow earned God's favor, we're no longer in the Christian faith. Because our works do not earn God's favor. Our works, as best we can understand, are filthy rags. God does not elect us on the basis of the good we do. God elects us on the basis of, of who he is and what Christ has done. It's very important. Muslims believe that you earn God's favor on the basis of the works you do. Mormons believe that you earn God's favor on the basis of the work that you do. That's where that comes in. The gospel is not about the works that you do. The gospel is about the works that Christ has already done. And that's how we're saved. So we have these indicators. Because that's what this is. These are indicators of saving faith. 
for the church at Thessalonica. He's thankful for their work of faith, their labor of love, their steadfastness and hope. These are indicators, but Paul goes on. He goes on to talk further about these indicators in verse five. He says, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. The gospel isn't just a word exercise. It's not just an exchange of ideas and an exchange of content. The gospel is not just me telling you about who Christ is and what he has done. The gospel has some some benefits that come along with it. And that's that indicator of, of where true salvation lies. The gospel has signs that come with it. That's why the New Testament clearly and consistently teaches that saving faith and works of faith go hand in hand. Works flow out of faith, not passively, but actively, because works are indicative of faith. If you show me a person, and I believe this is biblical, who claims to be a Christian, but has no commitment to the church, no devotional life, no heart for worship, no love for neighbor. I mean, those are pretty basic expectations of the Christian faith. I mean, if, if somebody said, hey, what, what's, a, what's a new Christian supposed to do? Those are things that we would all agree. Those are, those are positive things that should manifest in the life of a Christian. If you show me someone who claims to be a Christian but who lacks those, those very basic elements of what it means to be a Christian, then I'll show you someone who lacks the most basic indicators of saving faith. Can we say they're not a Christian? It's above our pay grade. But we can at least look and say, you don't have the indicators of being a Christian. You're lacking the indicators of election. It's missing in your life. Again, it's above my pay grade to determine someone's election, but I can tell you this, that the scriptures are clear about works proceeding out of our faith. Use whatever term you like. Those who elect bear spiritual fruit that is consistent with their spiritual gifts. And when it comes to this fact, I don't know that it matters who chose who first. Whether God chose you because of his knowledge of your choice later or God chose you out of his own own free will, it doesn't matter. Because the outcome is the same. There are works that are consistent with that election. If you are elect because God chose you, your life is still supposed to bear fruit. And if you are elect because you chose God, your life is still supposed to bear fruit. And I'll say this. If you're more worried about the semantics of election than you're worried about the spiritual fruit of your own life, then you've missed the point. And I've sat in many a seminary classes where people have argued the finer points of understanding election, but they have no fruit in their life and they've they've missed it. I think the thing to remember here, for Paul, this idea of election is a comfort, not a controversy. He doesn't write this and say, I'm going to put this in the first, the first couple of sentences and the church at Thessalonica is going to lose their minds because I'm introducing them to this idea of election. It's not for them controversy. It's something that's, that's comfort. It's something that's, that's satisfying. It's something that's pleasing because the signs that were coming out of the Thessalonian church were clear indicators of their saving faith. It wasn't fake. It was clearly a movement of God. They didn't have TikTok to spread it. All they had was word of mouth and word of testimony, but it was clearly a movement of God. The subject that is controversial in the church today is very much a source of comfort for the apostle Paul. And if we recognize that election and works go hand in hand, 
then we have to also understand that God is still working in us throughout the course of our Christian lives. Guess what? We don't all have it figured out. There's still very much work to be done. We still do have to do battle with the flesh, much like that poor bird has to do battle with his own reflection. We are fortunate, though, in that we have the Word of God. We have the Holy Spirit to help us understand what it means to walk with the Lord. Nobody comes to faith in Christ today and says, gosh, I don't know what to do. Give them a Bible and say, follow Jesus. Do what, uh, read about Jesus. See what Paul does. Give them a Bible and they can figure out some really important things about what it means to walk with the Lord. But we still benefit from the role of mentors and counselors in our daily lives. For the church at Thessalonica, they'd have the scriptures. They'd have a copy of the, the Bible. They, they didn't have that available. The only thing they had was incredibly important in the early church, and Jacob talked about that with the kids, is this idea of, of imitation. And so we have this reputation of imitation if you look down at verses five and six. The apostle Paul recognized how critical it was for him to live his life in a way that patterned faithfulness for his churches. The last part of verse five emphasizes this. He says, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Paul knew that the church needed to see an example of what it looked like, not only to talk like a Christian, but to live like a Christian as well. And Paul would go into a town, and he would give them examples of what, it, what the gospel is, but he'd also live it out in real life. He knew that the church needed exemplary Christians that they could pattern their lives after because they didn't have discipleship material. They didn't have a Bible that they could open and read. They didn't have access to that yet, and so they needed exemplary men and women that they could follow, that they could pattern, that they could imitate. Paul understood something about human nature then, and it remains very part of, very much part of human nature today, the power of imitation. You say, oh, that's silly, that's, that's old-fashioned. Is it? Because I would argue that we very much have a problem of imitation today, except we're not imitating Jesus, we're imitating the wrong things. Today, there's professionals on the internet who make a lot of money because of their title. You know what their title is? Influencers. Influencers. There are people, I mean, I mean, what's your job? Oh, I'm an internet influencer. A what? What do you produce? Because that used to be how you measured somebody's, uh, you know, e economic worth. What do you produce? Well, I'm an influencer. I, I, I peddle influence. And, and they're making livings off being influencers. They use their platform to convince their followers to be like them. If, if you'll just follow this path, this sport, if you'll just drive this car, whatever they are influencing, you'll be happy and you'll be successful and your life will be amazing if you just do what I influence you to do. Back in December of 2007, Tom Brady, y'all know that guy? He was featured on a CBS 60 Minutes interview, 2007. At the time, Brady was the quarterback, of course, of the Patriots, a three-time Super Bowl champion, rookie numbers. He had a contract with the Patriots worth millions of dollars a year. If you were to look at Brady in 2007 and say, has he reached the pinnacle three-time Super I mean, he probably, I mean, three rings on one hand. That's a, that's a heavy load to carry around. I've seen an AFC championship ring in person, and so I can't imagine what a Super Bowl ring was like. Millions of dollars married to a supermodel. I mean, by cultural standards, Tom Brady in 2007 had everything that you could want. He quoted in this article, he says, he says, why do I have three Super Bowl rings 
and still think there's something greater out there for me. I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what, it, this is, this is what it is. I've reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think, God, it, it's gotta be more than this. I mean, this isn't, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. Man, the world looks at him and says, he's got everything. He's got everything a man could want. Since that interview, Tom Brady has added, what, four more Super Bowl titles? I read the other day that Tom Brady is going to make more as a TV football analyst than he made as an athlete. He's got a contract with Fox News that's going to pay him more than he made the whole time he played for the NFL. Yet in the middle of all this fame and fortune, he's still missing some of the most important things. We know his family's a wreck. We know he's, he may have all kinds of measures of worldly success, but when it comes to measures of spiritual success, it doesn't seem that Tom Brady's doing all that great. And he even recognized that back in 2007 when he'd only won three Super Bowls. Our culture looks at Brady and says, follow his pathway if you want success, if you want accomplishment. But the gospel looks at all that and asks a very simple question. Are you taking up your cross and following Jesus? The number of your Super Bowl rings is irrelevant if you're not taking up your cross and following Jesus. For Paul, imitating him meant that the, Thessalon the Thessalonians were imitating Jesus, and this was a high priority for him. People couldn't see Jesus. They were only just now starting to have copies of the Gospels that they could learn from, and so they needed people to imitate Again, we have more resources at our disposal today than ever before in history, but the fact still remains, somebody is looking at you to see how you follow Jesus. I'd love to take the pressure off of you. I'd love to tell you not to worry about it. But the fact of the matter is this, if you're a Christian today, you are painting a picture of Jesus for somebody else. Now, that doesn't mean you have to have moral perfection. None of us have that. But it does mean that your imperfections are acknowledged and you are growing through those imperfections. And I'll give you the clearest example of this. It's your kids. It's your grandkids. They are watching you as you point them to Jesus. And the question you have to ask yourself every day, what picture are you painting? And I'm gonna say something that's very controversial. This is one of the main reasons that we believe children have a place in our worship services. This is why we believe children ought to be involved in the church as a whole. Because listen, parents, grandparents, your children need to see you worship. They need to see you sing and pray. They need to see you open your Bibles and take notes. Listen, we know kids can be busy. Believe it or not, kids can even be distracting. But kids are learning to imitate the attitudes and behaviors they see in the people they love and respect the most. And if you're sitting in church... and you're swiping Facebook, and you're looking at Instagram, 
and you're not paying attention to anything that's going on in the church, don't be shocked if your kids don't know what's going on either. Because they're watching, they're paying attention, they're learning how to imitate you. I promise you. I talked with a pastor one time at a much larger church, and he was so excited at their church, and this broke my heart. They had activities during the worship service for kids all the way through 12th grade. All the way through 12th grade. And man, it was growing. People were coming. People were filling the sanctuary. They were filling the youth group. They were filling the kids program. At what cost? You say, what's the big deal? A child in that environment would never worship with their family at all. And the first time a person would attend the worship service of the entire church would be when they walked out of 12th grade as a college student. Never shared communion with the church. Never experienced the, uh, the, uh, the invitation at the church. Never saw somebody get saved in worship service. The whole time they grew up. Our kids are watching us. And whether you like it or not, they're going to model our behaviors and attitudes. Now, the other side of this, though, that's a heavy burden on us. It's one that we ought to, we ought to carry because we know that God's given us our kids and our grandkids for, to, to teach them, to instruct them, to raise them so that they grow in their knowledge of the Lord. We understand that. But the other side of this is that every one of us needs to make sure that we've got people in our lives who challenge us to greater things in the Lord. If you're the most mature believer that you know, you're missing out. I got nobody to look up to. You need to find somebody that you can look up to. Because this idea of imitation that Paul gives us here in multiple places in his letters challenges us to find other people that make us better, that help us pray better, that help us share our faith more consistently, that help us be better at following Jesus. If you don't know how to pray well, find somebody to imitate that does pray well. If you don't know how to share your faith, hang out with somebody who does know how to share their faith because you will learn from them. They will help you be better at following Jesus. Just make sure that the people you're looking to imitate are actually working on imitating Jesus. And if we do this, what we'll actually find is that our church will have a stellar reputation. It shouldn't surprise us to see that a church that is working like Paul praises the Thessalonians here to see that they're slowly making a name for themselves. Verse seven, he says, you became an example. You're exemplary. All the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, everybody's heard about what you're doing. In the book, Healthy Kingdom Churches, J. Robert White said that a church's reputation in its community is one of the primary indicators of the church's health. What does the community think about our church? The church at Thessalonica has one of the best reputations in the Bible. And I guess that comes with the territory. They were birthed out of persecution, out of trial. Genuine believers don't tend to want to stick around or, or fake believers don't tend to want to stick around when the pressure rises. That's why some of the healthiest churches in the world today grow in places where it's the hardest to be a Christian. 
And that's why some of the most unhealthy churches grow in places where being a Christian is easy as a matter of convenience. We live in the buckle of the Bible belt. We'd better be careful because it's really easy to be unhealthy in a place where it's easy to be a Christian. It's really, really easy. But, but let's consider this as a whole, all of what we've talked about. Here's a church in Thessalonica. It's known for a clear understanding of saving faith. It's evident an ongoing effort to demonstrate love to the community. It's a community of believers that are fervent in their hope of Jesus' return. It's a church that is clear and confident in the Lord because they understand that he chose them and they didn't earn his favor. It's a church that's striving to follow Paul as their example, who is striving to follow Jesus. And if that is true, if all those things are true, then that church is going to grow. And that church is going to transform its community. That church isn't perfect, but it already understands that it isn't perfect and continues to work. And so, yes the church is going to have a stellar reputation. Every church has a reputation. Corinth had a reputation. It wasn't altogether great. Thessalonica, they're going to have a real impact for the kingdom of God, which leads to a difficult question. What is our church's reputation? You may answer that. But as you answer it, I would ask you to follow up with this question. What are you personally doing to improve it? Or what are you potentially doing to damage it? We live in this weird world of public criticism regarding the churches we attend or used to attend. It's really, really odd that, that we live where you leave a Google map review on the church or a Facebook review on the church. It's like, what is the goal to, to do this? What are we trying to accomplish? We, we, live in, we live in a world where keyboard warriors rule the day and, and we're, we're making an impact on a church's reputation. Now, again, I don't agree with my megachurch brother who has adult-only only services, but that's a decision that his church has made and their church is growing. I've been intentional not to tell you the name or go on social media and call them out. I've not written a book criticizing them, but I'm also not talking about them to the waitress at lunch. It's not my place. There's a difference in disagreeing with a particular denomination or a particular church over practical or doctrinal issues and openly criticizing and bad-mouthing them. If we're worried more about making sure that we're doing our part to strengthen the church than tearing it down, then we are doing something good. But in this culture of online reviews and keyboard warrioring, that tends to produce different results. And we need to be very mindful of our words and our actions. Are we pushing people toward the church or pulling them away? And this is one of these times when we read God's word that it's really important for us to have to hold up a mirror. I have to ask a really hard question. As you look at your faith today, right now in this moment, in the weeks preceding this moment, as you evaluate where you stand today, you look in that mirror and you ask the question, does your faith today confirm your election or call it into question? That's an important question. I can't answer that for you. As a result of your faith in Jesus, are you striving to live a life that is worthy of imitating? Do your children and grandchildren see in you a representative of Jesus that is worthy of imitating? 
And as a church, we take a long, hard look in that mirror as well. Are we working toward a reputation that is pleasing to the Lord? Would you pray with me, please? Father, I thank you for your challenge of Scripture. I thank you for the good news of the gospel. Thank you, Lord, that you, you love us in spite of us. You love us in spite of our failures and our sin. Thank you, Father, that even though you knew the mistakes that we would make, the grievous errors that we would be involved in, God, that you still saw fit to allow the Lord Jesus Christ to take our sin upon himself on the cross. And God, whether you looked down through time and space and saw who would choose you and you, you called them elect or whether you elected from your own freedom of will, I don't know that it matters. But what does matter is for every single person under the sound of my voice today, have they given their life to the Lord Jesus Christ? Have they put their faith and trust in, in you for salvation? So, yeah, I, I prayed a prayer when I was a kid or I got baptized when I was a kid. So many people have that testimony, but their life today doesn't bear witness to some experience that they had when they were children. The, the most basic, fundamental things, God, are lacking in so many that are riding on that experience at the end of Vacation Bible School. God, and I know even in this room there are those whose life today does not bear witness to the truth of their testimony. God, I'm in no position to judge, but I pray that the Holy Spirit would, that the Holy Spirit would convict and would challenge people's condition and that we'd see people give their life truly to Jesus Christ. And as we do that, that we would develop a faith that is worthy of imitation that we would truly point people to, the, to an accurate picture of Jesus. And so God, if you're indeed moving in this time, and if you're indeed moving in this culture, then God, I pray you'd move in our midst as well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.